0: Go ahead and grab them, turn them on, head on over to 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one. Some are in front of you, um, and you can follow along uh, with that one, or they will be on the screen for you as well. But I really encourage you to be in your own word. It's very helpful. So. But we are in 1 Corinthians, and we are looking at a church that is struggling to keep their eyes focused on Jesus. That's just my son. He he will preach here in about 20 years, maybe, or so. Yes. Uh, (laughs) um, But we're looking at a church that started to take their eyes off of Christ as their prize, as their gift, as the reason for their aptitude, and they started to look at their own skills and their own gifts, and they started to drift in all types of Controversies and uh, divisions, and we too, as I said last week, are prone as a church because we're human. Last time I checked, we're filled with many humans here, uh, and we're prone to take our eyes off of Christ, and we're prone to place them or and focus upon other things that are yes important. Don't ever hear me wrong but are not the main thing. And so we look at things like money, and we start to be dictated by money rather than faith. We look at making the budget our God rather than Jesus being our Lord. We look at our appearance, and our individual preferences tend to take the place of the gospel message in churches. And the goal of this series... And especially the sermon today, in the midst of all the noise and in all the chaos that our world has throwing at us, and we're hearing that Christ, our conviction for Christ, and our common salvation that is found in Jesus, would produce a unity that is stronger than all things that can be thrown at it. Because it's a unity that is circled around Christ. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we would be unified. And today we're going to flesh out what biblical unity is, because it's not neat and clean. We want it to be neat and clean, something that's easy, just cookie cutter. We can shove and pigeonhole everything through that. But actually what the Bible puts forward as biblical unity is messy. It's messy, and it's sometimes painful. And biblical unity might be a hard pill for some of us to swallow today. And last week, we hinted at some of the problems in the Church of Corinth. And today, we're going to jump right into the first problem, the first issue, which is divisions. You might have to just click on to the PowerPoint, sorry. And then my remote will give. There we go. It's divisions. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick right up in verse 10 and just read verse 10 to begin. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, That you all agree and that there are no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So what kind of divisions were seen in the Corinthian church? And just to list a few, some, the first category that I see are theological divisions. They're theological in nature. If you remember back to last year, when we were preaching through the book of Acts, we talked a lot about the mixing of Jewish believers with Gentile believers. And Gentile, just a quick easy understanding of that, is anybody who is not a Jew. So, unless you're here and you're Jewish today, you are a Gentile. I am a Gentile, but I'm Dutch, so I'm a better Gentile. Um, Just putting that out there, okay? So... Yeah, So we are Gentiles who are not Jewish, and what would happen is that as we see that these controversies that were alive and well throughout the book of Acts are alive and well here in the Corinthian church as more Jews were becoming believers in Jesus, and then they would start arguments with the Gentiles over what do we do with the Old Testament law. Some wanted to enforce that law because that's all they ever known, and they wanted it for holiness reasons. Others wanted to free themselves from that law and distance themselves from that law. Uh, and another big one that was rising here that was a theological in nature was food. Could we go to restaurants, per se? that They weren't really restaurants, but that's how I'm going to use the word. Restaurants where they knew that the food, the meat, was sacrificed to idols that were not Jesus. Could Christians go there and partake of that food even though they were not worshiping the idols? And this would cause divisions and tensions. And some of the divisions were theological, and others were personality-driven. For instance, look at verses 11 to 12 which says, "...for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ." So what the church was doing was dividing itself into classes, into camps based on leaders. It would be like if some of you were saying, I follow Aaron, I follow Tyler, I follow Harv, or I follow Ron, right? Like if you were just dividing yourself up into all these different categories and pledging your allegiance to leaders rather than to Christ. So uh, there were some people who were saying that I am a Paul guy because Paul He's rich in theology, and his letters are so beautiful. And I strive every day to read these letters and memorize these letters because I have to pass them on to someone else. And others would push back to the Paul camp and say, yeah, well, Paul has rich theology, I will give you that, but he's boring, like he's dull. I can't even stand to listen to him. And funny enough, Paul says this about himself in 2 Corinthians. He says, I'm mighty in my writing, but I am weak in my preaching. It's like this, there was an usher once at a church, and he's seating people, and this little old lady comes up to this usher and says, I want to be seated right with Dean at the front row. And the usher goes, ho, 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 man, I would not recommend that. Our pastor is so boring, and if you are sitting at the front row, you are going to fall asleep, and everyone's going to see you nod off. And she said, sir, do you know who I am? And he said, no, I'm the pastor's mother. Which, which the usher responded, ma'am, do you know who I am? She says, no. He says, good, have a good day, and walks away, right? So, uh, <laughs> but that was Paul. Paul had a type of preaching that only a mother could love, right? People say that about me. I have a face for radio. I don't understand what they're saying. But so we had Paul's camp. But others were in the camp of Apollos, so saying, I'm an Apollos guy. And Apollos, he showed up in Corinth just after Paul, and he really grew the church. He's the one that kind of really extended its reach. Uh, Paul planted it, and Apollos grew it by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can read all about this in Acts 18. And we see that Apollos was a dynamic speaker. He was the conference-level speaker that you would want to bring into your church and hear. Even though in his early days he might have got off a little bit on theological things that weren't 100% kosher, but other leaders came in and they set, you know, they set him straight and he had a quality that we should all strive to have, which is teachability. And he learned from them. But at the end of the day, Apollos could preach. He could bring down the house. And he grew the church through his preaching. So now, with these two major personalities within the church of Corinth, we have fractions going on. Because some are saying, I'm team Paul because I love deep theology. Others are like, no, 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 I'm team Apollos because I'm into growth in reaching people. And they would break fellowship over something as little as that. I guess I shouldn't be so surprised that some churches in our history have split over pink colors. So I guess, uh, I guess this is a little bit more reasonable. But they would split over these personalities and say horrible things about others and their mothers. It was just a wild time. And, uh, and they could say things, maybe they, maybe they said things along the lines like, Why would you listen to Apollos? You know, his theology is subpar compared to Paul's. And the others would uh, fire back, yeah, well, Paul is boring. I heard that one time that a guy fell out of a window because he was so bored and died. Like, when he was preaching his good theology. Like, how good is your theology if people are dying in church, right? Like, you can just hear it. They're just bickering back and forth to each other, and it got heated. But it doesn't just stop with Paul and Apollos. There was another group that felt this way about Peter. That's the name Cyphus. It's just another name for Peter. As you see mentioned in your Bible, they had their allegiances placed to Peter. And the others said, I belong to Christ. And I love this group because in every Christian church, in every Christian circle, there is always that guy or girl who just Jesus jukes everybody, right? So, like, for example, right? They say things like, I'm not into your theology books or preachers. It's just me and my Bible, and that's it. You know, you're at a small group with them, and you're struggling in prayer, and you say, Hey, can someone recommend a book on prayer? And they say, Have you heard of the Bible? And you're like, Thanks, Nostradamus. I've never thought of starting there, you know? And they're just like, And it's just annoying, right? And so what's funny is that most commentaries actually pull on that thread too. They say that this group might have been the most arrogant of them all because they assumed that they didn't need the church. They didn't need the fellowship, the community. All they needed was Jesus. It's just me and Jesus and no one else. And, we, and I'll watch online. I don't need to go to church this Sunday. I'll just watch online. It's just me and Jesus. And sadly, these same divisions are found in our modern churches as well. Right, You always have the Bible knowledge guy in church. They say, give me John Calvin, give me John Piper, give me Macar- John MacArthur, and they're always complaining that there's not enough meat in the sermon. And listen, I'm not against feeding spiritually. That's a must, and I will always strive to do that. But the problem with this group that when it arises when it comes at a self-centered nature. It's like they want every Sunday morning service to be turned into a classroom lecture rather than into preaching that we're called to do to puff their heads up with theological knowledge. And then within these groups, pride and self-centeredness grow. And it actually grows into a lack of concern for reaching the loss because on the inside, they're not really into spiritual growth. This group just likes to learn, plain and simple. They like to learn, and they have a lot of biblical knowledge. And this group is so hard on the unity of the church because they masquerade as spiritually mature people, but they're oft- and they often get elevated to positions of leadership like eldership. But do you know what they remind me of? They remind me of Levi when I was feeding him in a high chair, right? He's a typical toddler. You put him in the high chair when he was younger, he'd be screaming, feed me, feed me, feed me. Then you'd feed him, and what would he do? He'd throw the food on the floor, right? He'd throw it to the dog. He'd do everything but eat the food I put on his plate. And this was what reminds me of this group as they say, feed me, feed me, feed me. And then they feed them something on Sunday. Ah, not good enough. There's not enough Greek or Hebrew uh, tenses. And there's not enough theological terms for me to feel fed today. And I just want to stand up here and say, that doesn't happen here. And thank you for that. Maybe that shows I need to preach a little lower. But, uh, uh, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. But I am thankful that my inboxes are not filled with comments like that. But it is a problem that arises in many modern churches. Now again, don't hear me wrong. I am into deep preaching. And I strive to, deep, uh, to preach as deep as possible as I can every week. But for this group, it's not about spiritual maturity. They're not saying feed me more because I want to grow. They're saying feed me more because they're self-centered they just want to puff their knowledge up all the more. Others are, are in the modern church are like I'm an experienced guy. Right if the sermon doesn't give me goosebumps or pimples whatever you call them across my body at some point and the altars aren't filled with people weeping out to the Lord then it wasn't a true spirit-filled service. Others are like I'm a take care of the body guy. The church is ought to be all about discipleship, really doing life together. We should turn these chairs inward. We should be discussing rather than a guy standing up up front preaching. Our life group should be a minimum of 4 hours right? Come on, Dean. Minimum of four hours, right? So, uh, (laughs) five hours, yeah. And you should know every waking, intimate detail about that person's life in in that group. So, and so you got to take care of the body, guys. Others are in the mission and evangelism person who are only concerned about the gospel going out and nothing else. And others are the social justice person. They're very community- Driven And the list can go on and on and on of the different groups of people that make up the modern church. Which is the same thing we're seeing in in the Corinthian church when they're flying the flag of one leader over the other. Now, there is truth in all of that list that I just listed to you from the modern church. And a gospel-loving church, which we are striving to be, Fellowship Baptist Church, will pursue all of those things. But they will not make one of those things greater than the other. And I want to reinforce this morning that there's nothing wrong if you're sitting in these chairs and you are particularly drawn to one of those categories. That's good uh, if you're drawn to one over the other because it might come down to a personal gifting that the Lord has given you. And we want to encourage that. We are called the body of Christ for a reason. We are not all just called to be the arm or the foot or the hand, right? We're called to be the body. If we're all the foot, we wouldn't get anything done, right? Or if the hand is trying to be the foot, we wouldn't walk well, right? So you might be different aspects of the body of Christ, and that's important, and that's encouraged. So it makes sense that within these walls, it would be filled with people who are attracted to different expressions of what makes a church a church. And we should celebrate that, and we should promote that. But where it goes wrong, where we must guard against in our own personal lives and corporately as a church is when those, uh, those preferences we have are accompanied by a spirit of division. It's a self-righteous spirit and it causes separation. And Paul, in our uh, re- remaining verses, will give us four correctives to the spirit of divisiveness. And the first one is we must understand unity. So in the tail end of verse 10, uh, it says, be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So at this tail end, Paul's saying, be united, church, and you might be thinking, how? By magically just agreeing on everything by Monday morning? No, that would be impossible. That's not even what unity is. Paul's intention behind this letter to the Corinthians is not even to settle all of their arguments. He's not even saying, hey, it's okay. I know things are a little crazy. I'll be down there next winter, and I'll sort it all out for you. That's not what he's saying. He says, be of the same understanding and of the same judgment. And judgment there means conviction. And in the context of what we're talking about, he's saying be of the same understanding and of the same conviction about the gospel, right? Have the same understanding about the importance of the gospel and the secondary things are less than that and have the same conviction about the primacy of the gospel over all secondary matters of the church, And a lot of people call for unity within the church, but often they don't seem to know what true unity is. They have a misunderstanding of biblical unity. And I want you to always remember this as a church. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Unity for Paul and for the Bible is not conformity. It's not conformity where everybody in the church agrees on everything. That's not what the biblical picture of a church is, and that's not what the biblical picture of unity is either. So the New Testament church is a church where Jesus, hear this, is so large, is so glorified, is so in charge and grand that everything in, in, in comparison to him is small. That means all the secondary disagreements on secondary things are less important and he outshadows them. So that makes the secondary things where we can disagree upon are points of discussion and not division. Who cares what preacher you like? You shouldn't divide over that. That's what's going on here. But if Jesus is our central focus of the church and we are so focused on him, we can unify something larger than our personal preferences, and the best way that I could think about when I was reflecting on the sermon that I could give to you to kind of give a great example was COVID, and now before you all groan, do we really have to talk about that? Yes, we do, because the Christians failed miserably in this area. I know we don't want to talk about it, but we have to, and what was disappointing for me for Christians in 2020 was their ability to walk away from their churches over relatively small disagreements. And they are small, in light of the gospel and in light of eternity. (laughs) If you don't think the COVID issue was small in light of eternity, you have your eyes focused on the wrong thing. It is small. Some left their churches because their pastors didn't say enough or do enough about COVID. Others left churches because their pastors did too much and said too much about COVID, and it divided churches right down the middle. And I'm not speaking hypothetically. I am friends with men whose churches split, and the anger and the insults that were hurled to the other sides was disgusting, was embarrassing, and was sinful. Horrible. It was un- unbecoming over a relatively small disagreements in light of our unity in the gospel. And it's sadly funny because we as Christians, we get in our pulpits, we get behind our computer screens, and we say that we hate the cancel culture that the world puts forward, but yet it was surprising how quick so many Christians canceled their churches over a relatively small disagreement. And so what both sides wanted, either you were pro-COVID and all the crazy limitations, or you were against COVID uh, and against all the crazy uh, uh, limitations that were put on. And what both sides wanted was conformity. They had no time to listen to other sides. They had no time to unify around Jesus. They divided down the middle because they wanted conformity. And that's not what unity is. That's not what Paul is teaching. So that was the best way to really nail that home. Unity is not conformity. Unity is also not relativism, where relativism is where you say that everyone is right, right? That's not what I'm saying unity is. There are right and wrong approaches to many things in in life, and we should make those distinctions as a church. The question is, is the importance we give these things in our fellowship? Do we have, at the end of the day, the same conviction about the gospel and understanding of its importance, its primacy? Similarly, unity is not abandoning the faith. Some Christians believe that the only way that we could achieve true biblical unity and be unified is if we don't take clear stands on anything as a church. But throughout the letter towards the Corinthians, Paul identifies certain gospel principles that he says, we have to agree on these, church, or we will lose our identity of what it means to be a Christian. Things like the person and work of Jesus Christ, the nature of our saving faith, the inerrancy of God's word, and the one that's pulled out in Corinthians, and one that we need to defend in our day and age, is God's design for gender and sexuality and gender roles. Unity is possible when we gather. Uh, is possible when we gather around Christ and the core tenets of the Christian faith, and refuse to make secondary issues a point of separation because of point one. It's not conformity. And finally, the unity is not sentimentality, where you just sweep everything under the rug. This is one that we love as humans, right? Just sweep it under the rug. I'm never going to deal with it. Hopefully, if I just avoid it and don't think about it, it's going to just disappear or maybe deal with itself. A lot of people treat their health this way, and that's not a proper way to treat your health. It's not going to go anywhere. Go see a doctor, okay? Um, so we don't want to sweep everything under the rug. Right? We don't just want to smile for the camera and give a false perspective that everything's just hunky-dory. And that diversity is just a snapshot of the website or of the stage, but people in our church don't actually do life together. And those outside the majority rule of the church never find themselves in positions of influence. And that's not what Paul's vision of unity is either. What it is, is it's real people with different perspectives and preferences who find a larger and uniting hope in Jesus Christ. Unity is having a conviction about the gospel and the same understanding of its importance and then attempting to think about everything else, including the secondary issues through the lens of gospel primacy and importance. Which leads me to Paul's second point, which is we must embrace grace. Let's read together, picking up in verse uh, 13, which says, Is Christ divided? Was uh, was Paul crucified for you? Sorry. Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I just love Paul's writing here, because he writes like me. It's like, oh, squirrel. Oh, okay, yeah, it's back to the main point. This seems to almost distract Paul a little bit, but I think he's also being intentional because he's being led by the Holy Spirit to write this, and, 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 and he gives thanks that he baptized none except those three or few that he um, uh, uh, named, and that's, that's likely that those were the first converts. We, we can't prove that, but I like to think that anyways, and, and that he says this so that anyone could, so no one, sorry, could ever foolishly claim that they were baptized in the name of Paul. Now, don't hear Paul wrong, though. He's not disparaging baptism as something unimportant, but he is intentionally downplaying the role of the one who performs the baptism. In the context of his argument in the opening chapters, he gives thanks for not baptizing many so that the Corinthians could see that the ministry that they are involved in is a shared ministry. It's a shared partnership. And this was to stop the one-upmanship that was happening. I'm a Paulist guy, I'm a Paul guy, I'm Peter, whoever, Right? Some plant, Paul is saying, some water, and some harvest, and they're all important. It doesn't matter who did what in your life and which area. It doesn't matter which area you're involved in, planting, harvesting, or, or, or watering. But they're all important if we are keeping ourselves humble and under submission to Christ. But let's continue reading. I just have to take that squirrel with him. He says in verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the the uh, discernment of the discerning I will thwart, Uh, Where uh, is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of his age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For instance... The wisdom of God, Uh, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, Wow, there's a lot there. And what Paul is pretty much giving us is a nice list of things that don't bring salvation. Things that don't bring salvation, but we tend to focus on. For example, Jesus didn't save the world through philosophical wisdom. Salvation wasn't figured out by a bunch of philosophers and scholars who put their heads together to come up with this concept. Rather, salvation appeared to a bunch of poorly educated shepherds in the poorest towns of Israel. Jesus also didn't save the world through earthly success. This is exactly what the Jews wanted and looked for. They wanted the Messiah to have earthly success. The Jews sought sought signs and military might and financial success, but Jesus, at the end of the day, never got rich. He never commanded an army, and he didn't really have that large of a following. Honestly, when Jesus died, his life wouldn't have been counted as a success to earthly, uh, by earthly standards. At his death, he had maybe just over a hundred followers who all scattered in the wind when he died. Jesus also didn't save the world through modeling obedience to the law. Actually, the ones who modeled the greatest obedience to the law were the Pharisees, missed the Messiah. They missed Jesus. They, in fact, were his biggest opponents, it was the blue-collar workers of the day. It was the fishermen, the carpenters, the moral misfits, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes who made up the early church. Jesus also didn't save the world through the impartation of biblical wisdom. Now, before you throw spears, listen to me closely. I don't want you to misunderstand this. Teaching's important. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't stand up here every week. Teaching is what I do every week. Teaching is how we learn the gospel. But it wasn't Jesus' wisdom that saved us. It's what Jesus did that saved us. Think about it. What's Jesus' most famous sermon in the Gospels? The Sermon on the Mount. Yet, two of the Gospels don't even record it. I don't know of one single parable that is told in all four Gospels. Only two of the Gospels tell us about Jesus' birth, and only two tell us of his temptation. John's gospel doesn't even mention the Last Supper, nothing to do with the Eucharist. Neither Matthew or John mention the Ascension. However, hear this. All four gospels record Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial, Peter's denial, the people's choice of Barabbas, the inscription upon the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So what does that tell us that was primary focus of the gospel writers as essential? It's faith in the works of Christ, not knowledge of his teaching that saves you. That doesn't mean that those other things are not important. Don't hear that. Just that God didn't send down, he didn't save us by sending down a teacher to educate us, or a politician to reform us, or a life coach to help us figure out all of our junk, or a military leader to protect us. He sent down a substitute to die for us, amen? Come on, he sent down his son to live the life that you and I are supposed to live but could never live. And he died the death that all of us here sitting in this church and all the world were damned to die. And he did it. Not me and not you. And he saves us now through the foolishness of preaching. And the foolishness of preaching doesn't mean that I'm standing up here with a clown noise going, honk, 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 look at me. That's not what the foolishness of preaching means. It means that what we preach is rather simple in foolishness to the world. Here's the simple message of the gospel that is so foolish to the dying. It's summarized as this. Christ did it all, church. Christ did it all. Trust him. Lean on him. Love him. It's that simple. It's that simple. So as we saw in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified because verse 25, four, sorry, tells us that it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. You're not saved. I'm not saved by obtaining enough wisdom or power or even righteousness. Christ has all of those things in him in perfection, and we simply receive it as we receive him. It's all given to us in the gift of Christ. So my goal in preaching week in and week out is not to fill your minds with knowledge, so much knowledge that you are now acceptable to God, and it's also not to give you so much practical wisdom and to-do lists that you have no more problems in life, because I'm not that smart. (laughs) My goal in my preaching is for you to see in Savior the beauty of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ in all things of life that you would trust him, and that you would love him. Not just when it's good, not just when it's bad, but even through the mundaneness of life, you would love him, trust him, and marvel at his goodness. And you may be wondering, what does any of this have to do with unity? And that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. When you embrace the message of the gospel, the message of grace, and I mean really embrace it, not just know it, but live it out, the spirit of divisiveness leaves you. It's torn from you. Because behind divisiveness is, lurks a spirit of pride and self-justification. Meaning the things that you are attracted to that we talked about earlier make you feel superior to others when you operate in a spirit of divisiveness. For example, having more Bible knowledge than others might make us feel more righteous, so we take pride in being part of a church that excels in biblical knowledge. And that sets me apart, and that makes me feel better than all the rest. Being successful in ministry might make us feel more righteous, so we want to be part of a church that is known for success. Or maybe this one hits a little closer to home for some of you. We want to be the most zealous for social justice issues. And when we do that, it makes us feel so much more righteous. So I want one thing our church to be known for is social justice acts and be identified as that. But here this church, none of those things save you. None of them save you. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone. And at the end of the day, all your biblical knowledge, all of your success, and all of your social justice acts are all filthy rags before a thrice-holy God. Before his holiness, as Paul would say, it's dung. It's rubbish. Because we are saved by the prime, precious jewel, which is Christ who became righteous and wisdom and success for us. And we get all things in him. We don't have to strive for it. And when you embrace that, you will find that your pride crumbles and the spirit of divisiveness will leave you. Nathan Coles, who was a Connecticut farmer in 1730s, tells the story of listening to the great evangelist George Whitfield. He recorded his conversation, his journal, on one of the preachings that God used to spawn the Great Awakening. And this is what he reflected upon. He said, in my hearing, uh, my hearing him preach, gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. I came to a point where I realized that all things I had prided myself in, all things I thought set me apart from others were useless to God. And then I was ready to embrace the grace of Christ. So it wasn't just his sins that needed to be repented of, it was his false sense of self-righteousness, which yes, is a sin, but self-righteousness sends more people to hell than sin ever does. The true gospel cuts against the grain of our hearts in a deep and fundamental way. And it's the human nature in us that wants us to earn our way to God. It's so hard to kill that. It's like we're, we're on a treadmill always in our life trying to earn the respects of others, and we put that same idea towards God. We're always on this treadmill trying to come up with something that just sets us apart so God can see us as worthy so we don't feel like a charity case. But church, when you come to a place of humility, when you say, I have no power, Lord, I have no righteousness, I have no success, I have no wisdom except for what is given to me in Christ, that cuts the oxygen off to your pride, and it kills it, and the spirit of divisiveness will leave. And when pride and self-justification are taken out of your preferences, It frees you then to present your preferences without being smug, without being defensive, and without being divisive about them. Because preferences are important. But it's those areas where they're horrendous to the unity of the church. Which leads me to the third corrective, which is we must enlarge Christ. In verse 13a it says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And what Paul is essentially saying here is, where's your salvation, church? Is your salvation, is your life all about Christ? If it is, then what is the significance of all these secondary matters have to do with your identity? It's a rhetorical question. It's nothing. They have nothing to do with your identity. Paul is not suggesting that the moment you are saved, that all of your preferences and all of your differences will just magically vanish... But what he is suggesting is that at the result of your love for Christ and your salvation that is rooted in Him, your preferences and your differences would become less important. And when you find yourself getting upset over your preferences not being met or you start to take it out on others or or rock the boat or, God forbid, divide over that, That is a sure telltale sign to yourself that the secondary things in your life are too large and your heart and your identity in Christ is too small. And when that happens, it always leads to divisions in the church because you are living to your preferences and your education and your experience, etc., 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 And what's disappointing and what has become a major issue in the church at a large scale since 2020 and it's become clear is that many Christians have made their politics and cultural perspectives so big and their Christ so small that it had major impacts and it's still having tensions and fractions and impacts today upon the church because the secondary things are way too big. So let's aim, Fellowship Baptist Church, to make Christ large and our preferences small. Because when our church, or sorry, when our Christ, sorry, is large and our identity is rooted in Him, it won't bother you when your preferences are overlooked or you're not praised for your efforts or whatever it might be that gets you going. And lastly, as I close, we see that Paul is telling us to wean ourselves off of celebrity. Throughout these verses, Paul keeps pulling on this common thread to get the Corinthians to think how foolish it is to put their identity in any different leader. Look at what he says at the tail end of 13. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What he's asking is a fundamental question. Who is your salvation dependent upon? Is it Christ? And you better hope it's Christ and not us. That's what he's saying. The celebrity preacher or Christian is not a new thing in the church tr- in the, and in the Christian context. It has always been a part of the church movement. We see it here in Corinthians, but now in our social media saturated world, this celebrity problem has taken on new levels and we as christians we love to associate ourselves with certain teachers because we feel connected to them and they give us a sort of sense of identity and maybe even superiority to others because you listen to sprawl or macarthur or you read john owen who is like squint print and puts me to sleep right so but paul says you don't need to be set apart by anyone else but by christ All the righteousness, all the specialness, and all the power you need and desire are found in him. Sure, do some earthly leaders, can can they be helpful to you on this earth? Yes. And is it okay to gravitate towards them? Yes. But you're not ever going to be dependent on them. Because when you do, they will fail you. You need to look at earthly leaders as temporary tools in the hands of Christ. This is why I love the opening of Psalm 23 that says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? And when you read that, I really want you to emphasize that. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord. Not John Piper. Not Paul. Not MacArthur. Not Aaron. I hope it's not me. Oh God, I hope it's not me. It's none of those people. It's neither me. It's Jesus. The Lord. And when the Lord is your shepherd, you will never lack. If you're shepherd, if you put your identity in me or any other leader, you will lack and we will fail you. Let me ask you this way. If I were to die tomorrow or get called to a different church and before any rumors start, I'm not planning to die, nor am I planning to leave. I'm going to be here as long as the good Lord lets me uh, or until you drive me out, one of the two. <laughs> so, But I'm not planning on going anywhere. But hypothetically, let's say I'm gone. Would you leave FBC? And if you say no, that makes me happy because that shows me that your allegiance is to the body of Christ and not to me. If you, for whatever reason, would say yes, shows me that your allegiance is to a leader. And that's a problem because what that does, is that makes you treat the church like a restaurant with your favorite chef and not the family of God that you belong to or a movement that you're committed to. Jesus is the shepherd of your soul through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Who is Aaron? I'm a nobody. Sure, maybe you were attracted to this church because my preaching connects you. Maybe you really like our worship style that's led by our awesome worship leader, Nikki, Or or maybe your kids love our kids downstairs with Chantel and Tamara. Or your, your teens love our youth ministry with Pastor Tyler. Yeah, those are fine reasons to come. But over time, you must develop family bonds. Bonds that are stronger than, my, than preaching preference or worship styles. Bonds that go beyond me and bonds that can weather the disagreements that rise in a body. When I was reflecting on this, I started to think, man, I, and I hate naming names because I always forget some, so if I offend you, I'm sorry. But like I started to think of people like the urches people like the Kormaninskys, Kormaninskys, people like the Betchers, people like the Chambers, people like Elaine Funk, people like the Offords, and others who I might be missing, who have been here for many, many years. And I'm sure if I asked any of them, they would say, yeah, we've had some really good times, but we've also had some very poor times. And Ron Halliday, I knew I forgot one. Yeah, we had some times where Christ was enlarged, and we were being used mightily but we also had some really bad guys that came in here and took our church in the wrong direction. But guess what? Look around this room. Who's still sitting here? They are. Because their identity, they were not attached to a leader, but attached to a body. And that's important. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying, is that this church needs to become family to you. And leaving a church should feel like leaving a family. I'm not saying there's never a time to leave a church. What I'm saying is that it shouldn't be as easy as flipping the channels on your TV. It shouldn't be like switching up a restaurant to go to the new restaurant because they have some fancy appetizers there. If you leave a church, it should feel like leaving a family. So make family bonds with the people sitting next to you in these seats. And engage also in the mission of Christ here at the church. Don't just be a spectator who comes in because you like my style of preaching or you like our kind of worship. It's fine to start there. But if you're going to belong to Christ, I encourage you to live out the mission here at Fellowship Baptist Church. I meet with so many of you week in and week out. And the ones who tell me that they're growing the most are not just the ones who are plugged into our ministries. You should be plugged into our ministries and being fed, but it's the ones who are volunteering in those ministries. There's a reason when, uh, there, sorry, there are seasons when you just need to sit back and consume for whatever reason. I'm not judging that. That's important. You need to do that. But I can tell you that your faith will grow and your life will change more when you're practicing what you believe and you do it through the volunteering of the local church and the ministries. And if there's a ministry here that God has laid upon your heart and it fits within our mission and of, mission of vision, maybe it's you need to bring in new streams of focus as well. You may be wondering how or why this is the case, and it's pretty simple. It's this: There is nothing that blesses your walk with Jesus like helping someone else with theirs. I can't stress that principle enough. So Church, let's resolve ourselves to make the gospel the one thing that we unite around, the thing that is so large in, in our heart and our hearts, and that the differences that we have might seem insignificant. I have a lot of perspectives. I have a lot of preferences that are important to me. And I'm sure you do too. But none of them are as important as reaching the lost souls with the gospel. May my preferences, my perspectives never be the thing that hinders that. And may that be true for you as well. Let's pray and then take communion. Father, I praise you and I thank you, Lord, for the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter written by Paul the Apostle, who also came from such a crazy background of persecuting the church and being saved on the road to Damascus and then being used as one of the greatest apostles in the early church. Father, I thank you, Lord, that we have the words that you inspired him to write to challenge us today as a church in 2023. Father, may we hear your words and not take offense and divide but may we hear your words and feel the cut of our heart and transform into what you have called us to be father as we go to partake in the lord's supper may you be with us and bless us